1: Hey, guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. As you can see, I have my voice back in full, and I'm very happy about that. I don't sound all raspy and weird, and I don't know what happened there last week. You took week. a journey. <laughs> I did. I did. But it was a very quick journey. It was. It was. So yeah, so the day after we recorded the last episode where I mentioned that I was getting uh, a little bit of a hoarseness in my voice, the very next day, I pretty much had no voice at all. I sounded like a complete frog, and I sent Melissa a little voice memo on our phones, and I was like, listen to my voice now. Like, aren't you so glad
0: that we recorded yesterday? We timed that right, yeah. Yeah,
1: because it was so much worse. But then I rapidly recovered, and now here we are, and I sound completely normal. And I'm very happy for that.
0: You've convinced me that I need to drink more water because I'm like at the two-week mark, and I'm still like, why am I coughing all the time, (laughs) chugging a Diet Coke? I really just want to feel better grabbing one from McDonald's, you know, like double fisting them. I'm like, why can't I just heal myself? You're like, you should drink more water. Crap. (laughs) (laughs) That probably would help me. So I'm going to be team water for the next few days. and I'll, you know, how it works out. probably good good. it'll probably yeah
1: i'm i am absolutely
0: positive that that will work out well for you (laughs) (laughs) i like that it's a competition with myself but i'm still going to drink a lot of diet coke it just means i'm going to be peeing all the time because i'm going to continue my intake my normal intake yeah but you you just have to offset it with some water just drink some water.
1: just drink some water that's the motto and for everybody listening just drink some water
0: Stop what you're doing right now. <laughs> drink some water. Okay, Everybody you needs can to drink, drink water and listen to this. So do not stop everything you're doing. But well, yeah, drink yeah. water. I know. <laughs> also, this week we're sponsored by H2O. Uh, we're part of the Water Council, apparently. Mandy. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, are you going to catch on to what I'm doing I was here? Like, Wait, it's we not are? great. <laughs> All right. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> Please get us out of here.
1: Yeah. All right. So we have a lot to get into this episode. I'm very excited. We're just going to get straight into it because I'm so excited and don't want to say anything else before we get get to it. There's a number of jobs that I don't think I could ever personally do. Things like exterminator, porta potty cleaner. Ooh, sounds terrible. Uh, landfill operator, or even crime scene cleaner. These are really just a few examples of important jobs that we need people willing to do. But I'm just saying, I am not among the willing. And we can go ahead and add mortician to the list of jobs that I don't think I could ever do. But I do find it fascinating. And I wonder what that career is like for those who are in it. Melissa, have you ever just sat and thought about like different jobs that people have and are like, could I do that? Could I not do that? And like, what about mortician?
0: Ooh, I um, try to limit my thinking in general, (laughs) so (laughs) I can't say I've done that. But mortician is one, absolutely not. No, I could not do it. Anything in a funeral home, I couldn't do. I I think people that do it are very special people. Absolutely. It just seems incredibly difficult, and it takes a special kind of person to do it, for sure.
1: For sure, yeah, because on one hand, the job of preparing somebody for burial is really important. Just an important part of our collective existence. You know, it's part of society. It's a job that needs to be done. But on the other hand, it really does have to be an incredibly somber and doleful career. And it's just one of those things that definitely is not for everyone. But it was for Bernie T.D. Bernhardt T.D. II was born on August 2nd, 1958, in Texas. He and his younger sister were raised mostly by their dad, Bernhardt Sr., after their mom died in a car accident when Bernie was three. His dad worked as the director of fine arts at Kilgore College and eventually remarried in 1968. After that, Bernhardt Sr. took a job as a music professor at McMurray College and the family moved to Abilene. So just like his father, little Bernie was also musically talented and could sing and play instruments. When Bernie was 15, his father unfortunately died after a long battle with illness, so Bernie had to grow up faster than the other teens, and he got a job at North's funeral home to help take care of himself and his little sister. His boss at this funeral home said that Bernie was a bright young man who really enjoyed helping people. He was close with his sister, who later said that Bernie made it his calling to serve people in their time of need because of the loneliness that he went through in his childhood after their mom died. She said that Bernie was a popular kid at school. He was actually very well-liked. He would do things like sneak the hearse out on Fridays and drive a bunch of friends around town. Bernie always felt like he was supposed to take care of others, though, and that may be why the funeral business appealed to him.
0: During his senior year of high school, Bernie was the president of the Thespian Society and was heavily involved in the drama department at the school. Bernie was awarded Best Supporting Actor for his role in The Night of the Burning Pestle. He was also given a trophy for Best Thespian, which I imagine if you're in theater, that's got to be like the award to get, right? Of course, yeah. Fun fact, the school also had something called the Squirrel Nutkin Award. Not exactly <laughs> sure what it is. It's probably Shakespeare. Let's be I honest. I feel
1: like we should speculate on what the Squirrel Nutkin Award would, would be for.
0: <laughs> well, my immediate thought is that it reminds me of the Nutcracker, Right. And yeah. so maybe it's like the best uh, the best overall in the Nutcracker. That's what I'm going to guess. That doesn't okay. even make sense. I like don't, that. I, don't agree with that.
1: <laughs> I like that. But I actually don't even have an alternate, like, an alternate <laughs> idea.
0: I just wanted to hear Melissa speculate on oh what it could gosh. be. Oh, my gosh. I told you, I don't think. <laughs> so after high school, though, Bernie goes to McNeese State University in Lake Charles, Louisiana. My brother actually lived there for a while in Lake Charles. By that time, he decided that the funeral business was where he belonged, and he got his associate's degree in funeral services. Bernie then took a job as a mortician and embalmer at Johnson's Funeral Home in Lake Charles. Everyone, and we mean literally everyone, loved this guy. He was the most friendly, outgoing, polite, and lovable guy you could ever possibly meet. He was really described as being everybody's friend. In 1985, Bernie left Louisiana, and he went back to Texas. He lived in a small apartment right behind the funeral home where he worked in the town of Carthage up until 1994. Don Lipsy, who was the owner of the funeral home, said that Bernie was the most qualified young man he'd ever seen and that he waited on the families well. Bernie would even sing solos behind the screen during a funeral. He was also really good at embalming and he had a knack for making the hair of the deceased look natural. In Texas, Bernie was known the same way he was in Louisiana, being extremely kind, friendly, and warm. A woman named Paula told Texas Monthly that Bernie brought compassion to the town. He would literally stop everything he was doing to help someone or just to lend an ear. Bernie had a particular soft spot for older women who had just lost their husbands, and he treated them very empathetically even keeping up with them in the weeks following their loss and offering to do things for them like picking up their medications from the drugstore or really anything they needed. Compared to other men in town, Bernie was just different. He was described as being, quote, peachy and sweet, end quote, which is a really great compliment. That's a Actually, wonderful I, way to explain I or I to describe that is how people describe me. Are you asking if I do that or would you like me to? <laughs> I'm or, just like, saying, honest opinions here. That's like life's goals. <laughs> it is a great way. No one in the world is ever going to describe me as that. So, I think that's great for you. I love that for you. I, honestly, I love that for you. <laughs> so, Bernie had sort of this baby face with chubby cheeks and this big, bushy mustache. He dressed in colorful clothing and he drove around smiling at everyone he saw. Don Lipsy said that Bernie wasn't a bad looking guy and there were several women who would have dated him, but Bernie didn't really seem interested in romance at all. Some people would speculate that Bernie may be gay, never saying it in an ugly way. They really didn't care. Everyone in town just loved him. But nobody knew for sure what kind of person Bernie was actually interested in romantically. He just didn't seem to care for romance at all. Bernie was the president of the Shreveport Chambers Singers and Carthage Aviation, but he was involved in many other groups and organizations, including the Chamber of Commerce. He attended church and practiced in the choir, and he was also what's known as a lay minister, which meant he would fill in when needed. This little town of Carthage was about 20 miles from the Louisiana state border, and the whole place was full of classic Southern hospitality. And there were lots of well-off widows living in this area at the time. It was in 1985 when Bernie met an older woman named Marjorie Nugent. Marjorie's mother passed away and Bernie had handled the funeral and then befriended Marjorie. And everything that happened after this is a wild ride of a story.
1: So Marjorie Nugent was quite a character. She was born in 1916 in Panola County, Texas, but she grew up in Carthage with her two sisters and her mom, Ella, who was a teacher, and her dad, Spencer, who ran a grocery store. Marjorie went to Louisiana Tech and met the man that she would eventually marry, Rod Nugent. Rod had recently graduated with an electrical engineering degree and took a job with Magnolia Oil, which later became Mobile. They lived in various parts of Louisiana, Texas, and New Mexico for the next few decades. They had one child together who was a boy named Rod Jr. Although Marjorie was an accomplished seamstress, she didn't really need to work because she and Rod were extremely wealthy. Marjorie spent her time participating in numerous groups. Although Marjorie was born in Carthage, she and Rod made a name for themselves as being pretty snooty around there. Marjorie acted like she was too good for the town. She didn't want to participate in any of the civic activities, and she seemed to really hate spending her money there. One man actually said that if Marjorie had her nose any higher, she'd drown in a rainstorm, which I think is like the coolest southern phrase to say, like that somebody's right? stuck up. And I just want to remember that one forever. I've never heard that before. <laughs> it's good. Uh, so Marjorie actually rarely even left her estate She and Rod had this huge 6,000-square-foot home that was surrounded by a stone wall and electric gates, and she just stayed inside of it as much as she possibly could. Because of her quirky and different behavior, Marjorie became the talk of the town and the object of many gossip sessions. Neighbors learned that Marjorie was estranged from one of her sisters and that she had so many disagreements with her one and only son that they hardly even spoke anymore. Texas Monthly later said, quote, much of the gossip about Marjorie was no doubt exaggerated, end quote. One person did say, though, that Marjorie wasn't all that unfriendly, but she didn't go out of her way to be friendly. And this person said that can mean a lot in a small town, which you kind of understand that uh, a little bit. I don't know. Melissa, you and I have both grown up. I think in Florida in the South. And so I kind of understand what they're saying here where it's like, she wasn't like super unfriendly, but she also didn't go out of her way to like be friendly to people. But I've been in towns where I can understand where that would mean something.
0: Oh yeah. Where I grew up in Havana, which is North of Tallahassee, like, you know, everyone there. So you don't go to the gas station and see strangers, you know, everyone there. So if you aren't friendly, people are going to notice. Even I had to be friendly. And does that even make sense? No. (laughs) Right. Exactly. So in
1: 1990, Marjorie's husband, Rod, died. And there weren't really that many people that offered their condolences to Marjorie. So Bernie saw that Marjorie was really lonely, and he stepped up to be a friend to her in this time.
0: After Rod died, Marjorie started spending a lot of time with Bernie He would go over to her house for lunch, take her to see plays, and he even left endearing notes around her house. Bernie was pretty much Marjorie's only friend, and by 1991, they were close enough that Marjorie told her bank to accept checks that were signed by Bernie and that he was going to be handling some of her bills. Marjorie really liked Bernie. He made her smile, and he gave her a lot of attention. Soon after Rod's death, Marjorie gifted his $12,000 Rolex to Bernie. As Bernie and Marjorie got closer and they started spending a lot of time together, the other widows that Bernie had befriended started to feel kind of jealous because he didn't have as much time for them anymore. Meanwhile, Bernie and Marjorie were off living the dream. Marjorie took Bernie on a cruise and they even stayed in the same cabin, which led to rumors that there may have been some sort of a romantic relationship going on. They were also seen holding hands in public, which further fueled these rumors, but In reality, Bernie's really only holding Marjorie's hand because she's unsteady on her feet. As more time passed, Marjorie felt even closer to Bernie than ever. And eventually, she removed her own family from her will and made Bernie her sole beneficiary.
1: This, for me, is where I immediately get the red flags.
0: Right. Exactly. Because all of the rest of it's like, okay, he's being nice. He's being nice. He's being nice. And then this is like, hmm, but are you being nice for a different motivation? Right. And especially if you're the family, you could see red flags, like you were saying. Of course. So she also named Bernie her power of attorney. Marjorie told one of her cousins that she didn't want to leave any money to her son or her immediate family because they didn't appreciate her. As you can imagine, all of this fueled rumors about a romantic relationship even more than ever. By 1993, Bernie was over at Marjorie's estate every single day. He actually would get there early enough in the morning to make Marjorie coffee because she liked the way he made it. Even Marjorie's daughter-in-law believed that Marjorie and Bernie were having a fling, but she said they really didn't care. They just wanted her to be happy. Bernie's boss, Don Lipsy, said he knew they weren't having a romantic relationship, but it was a small town, so of course people are going to talk. However, romantic or not, the relationship between the two was becoming a problem for everyone else. Don Lipsy told Bernie that he was spending far too much time with Marjorie and not enough time on work and told him that he needed to stop spending as much time with her. 30 days later, nothing had really changed, so Don had to give Bernie an ultimatum. He should choose Marjorie or choose his job. And Bernie chose to work for Marjorie. She was actually going to hire him to be her business manager and escort on vacations. Don said to him, quote, You know what kind of woman Marjorie is. Whatever you think you're going to get out of her, you're going to have to earn every penny of it, end quote. But Bernie wasn't concerned. He said that Marjorie was a sweet woman deep down and that he would be just fine. So by
1: this point, Bernie was pretty much financially dependent on Marjorie. Even when he was working at the funeral home, Bernie was only making about $18,000 a year, which would be equivalent to about $35,000 a year today while Marjorie was making the equivalent of half a million per year just off of the oil and gas royalty payments alone. Yeah. So after Bernie quit his job at the funeral home, Marjorie gave him a loan, which he used to purchase a house about a mile away from hers. He was ecstatic to have this new house, and he was really excited to show it off. He invited a lot of important people from the community to come and see it. Bernie's life changed in many ways as a result of his relationship and his association with Marjorie. He got his pilot's license and he bought a few small planes. He took Marjorie's seat on the board at the bank and he worked as Marjorie's financial advisor, even though he had absolutely no qualifications to do this. He didn't know anything about money or managing money. And here he is managing this woman's like multi-million dollar estate. So it was a super glamorous life for Bernie. He reaped many benefits of being friends with Marjorie, but just like his boss Don had warned him, Bernie paid the price for all of it. He pretty much became her beck and call boy and did everything for her. He was to have her medications laid out every day, and if he wasn't at her house by 11.45 a.m. for lunch, she would get very upset and even start panicking to the point that she would start just blowing up his phone and paging his pager until he got there. If Bernie was away from Marjorie, he had to stop everything he was doing and talk to her anytime she called, which was a lot. Throughout this time, Bernie had full access to Marjorie's finances, and he took full advantage of that. He was actually stealing from her, but in true Bernie fashion, it was always to help others. He bought at least 10 cars for people who couldn't afford them. He also bought a home for a young couple. He gave scholarships to students at local colleges, donated $100,000 for a new building for his church, purchased a failing trophy shop, and also helped a former co-worker open a clothing store. But still, the odd relationship seemed to also benefit Marjorie. She joined Bernie's church and even had the women's Sunday school class over for brunch. In 1994, Marjorie's family tried to visit her in Carthage, but Marjorie made it known that they weren't welcome and she really didn't want them there. But in 1995, things took a bit of a turn. Bernie told his sister that he was concerned about Marjorie and thought that she had signs of mild dementia – Things that made him think this included that Marjorie had fired the gardeners recently because the flowers didn't bloom on time. And in another instance, she forced Bernie to sit on the porch and shoot armadillos at all hours of the night, even though he told her he did not want to kill animals. So keep in mind, Bernie was seriously not a threatening or violent man whatsoever. He truly did not have a mean bone in his body, and he loved helping people. But Marjorie was really wearing out her welcome with Bernie, so to speak. She didn't speak to him very nicely and made him do everything for her, all while spoiling him with luxurious trips and possessions so that he would continue to stick around. Bernie told his sister that Marjorie was insanely controlling and constantly wearing him down, but he felt like he couldn't just quit working for her because he was literally all she had.
0: But one person can only take so much, and on November 19th, 1996, Bernie finally snapped. On that day, he and Marjorie, who was 80 years old at the time, were in her garage when, out of nowhere, Bernie shot her in the back four times. He then wrapped a sheet around her body and put her in the deep freezer and went on with the rest of his day as planned. Bernie took some drama students from the college out for pizza to celebrate their dress rehearsal of Guys and Dolls. He was actually the musical director for that show. The next day, Bernie cashed a $20,000 check that he had written the day before. In an effort to conceal what he's done, Bernie had the maid continue to clean Marjorie's house and the landscapers kept taking care of the yard. This went on successfully for weeks. That Christmas, Bernie put up a big Christmas tree in front of the window and put lights up around her house. The elaborate display actually caught the attention of a neighbor who knew that in years past, the only decorations Marjorie ever had out for Christmas were a couple of wooden soldiers that she put on the front porch, but she never had any lights. But this particular year, the lights stayed up until March. Bernie had a variety of excuses when it came to answering the question, where is Marjorie? At Thanksgiving, he said she was spending the holiday in Ohio with her sister, and he kept that lie up until after Christmas. When spring rolled around, Bernie started telling people that Marjorie was at home bedridden due to an illness and she was not accepting any visitors. Later in the spring, Bernie said Marjorie had a stroke and she was now living in a nursing home. He also said that she was, quote unquote, losing her mind and alleged that she had Alzheimer's. Meanwhile, Bernie was continuing to fund his life with Marjorie's money. In total, Bernie stole more than $4 million from Marjorie. Wow. Yeah, He performed about a dozen transfers from one of her accounts for a total of $250,000 and cashed in about $400,000 worth of checks, as well as making all those purchases we talked about earlier, like the cars, the home for the couple, buying that trophy shop. And there is still so much more to get into. But first, a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. Sponsors. Food allergies are truly the bane of my existence. For example, I'm getting school supplies ready, including making sure my son has these new EpiPens and Benadryl, and that he knows how to use both of them if he needs to. It's really high stress anytime food is involved when you have a kid with food allergies. And we aren't alone. In fact, 1 in 12 babies will develop food allergies each year. But it doesn't have to be that way, thanks to Ready Set Food. Evidence-based research, USDA guidelines, pediatricians, and allergists all agree. Feeding babies small amounts of common food allergens like peanut, egg, and milk consistently for six months or more starting at four months of age can actually prevent severe food allergies from developing by up to 80%. But how do you know how much and how often you should feed your
1: baby these allergenic foods? Well, here's where Ready, Set, Food comes in. Ready Set Food was developed by an allergist and a mother of two and knows how hard it can be to meet those medical guidelines on your own. This resulted in a gentle guided system that takes both the mess and stress out of introducing allergens. From the daily mix-ins you stir into a bottle or food or the new organic baby oatmeal that has nine top allergens already inside for meals that are ready in just a few seconds.
0: Head over to ReadySetFood.com momsandmurder and use code momsandmurder for 30% off your first order of Ready Set Food and give your child the best chance to avoid developing a severe food allergy. A good night's sleep can do wonders. Just ask me how important sleep is the day after my kids are sick. While kids don't get the importance of sleep, as an adult, I sure do. And if you're looking for proven quality sleep, you want a sleep number bed just like us.
1: Sleep IQ data shows us that sleepers who use their 360 smart bed technology like we have get 28 more minutes of restful sleep per night, which adds up to 170 hours per year. And that means more of an opportunity for you to be on your game when the daytime rolls around. I like to measure my life as BSN and ASN, before sleep number and after sleep number. My sleep now is incredible, and I've discovered that my perfect sleep number setting is a 30, but sometimes I flirt with a 25 for an even softer experience. I always wake up feeling like I got the best night of sleep and my sleep IQ score of 87 confirms that I am sleeping better than ever.
0: My son is still a terrible sleeper, so oftentimes I'll lay in his room until he falls asleep and then I make a mad dash to my sleep number bed. Because when I'm sleeping on my sleep number setting at a 30, my sleep IQ is between an 85 and 90, which is incredible as someone who's always struggled with getting a good night's sleep. Why
1: choose proven quality sleep from sleep number? Because every great day starts at night before. Discover special offers now for a limited time at your local Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com
0: moms. Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between – DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience.
1: Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply.
0: Now back to the episode.
1: So before the break, we had started this wild story about Bernie TD and Marjorie Nugent and this unusual relationship that they had with each other. Bernie was taking care of Marjorie in a very loving and actually caring way. And meanwhile, she was also funding a very luxurious lifestyle for him. So it was kind of this mutually beneficial relationship. But Bernie started taking advantage of that and was actually stealing from Marjorie uh, to the tune of a total of $4 million. And eventually one day he snapped and shot Marjorie Nugent in the back. Uh, so we kind of are getting up to this point now where – Everyone's wondering, where is Marjorie? There's been a lot of time has passed since the time she was killed to now. We're now in the new year and nobody has seen or heard anything from Marjorie. So the suspicions that something was wrong really began to rise. One woman named Ruth later said that she was suspicious of where Marjorie was, but she didn't think that she could go to the police because if she was wrong, she would be laughed out of Carthage. But finally, in July of 1997, eight months after Marjorie was killed, Investigators were contacted by an anonymous caller who said that they were worried about Marjorie because it didn't seem like anybody had seen her for quite some time. Detectives didn't even investigate this tip for a month, which Whoa. is just crazy to me that they didn't even send somebody out there to just knock on the door and say, like, hey, what's going on? For a month? That's crazy. Right.
0: That's yeah, I've never crazy. heard
1: that. Um, so. so Eventually, finally, after a month, the officers finally asked Bernie where Marjorie was, and he told them that she was very sick and was in a temple hospital under the name of Jane Doe. When they went to this hospital to find her, they were told that there was nobody there, you know, for treatment that matched Marjorie's description. Officers then contacted Marjorie's son, Rod Jr., to find out if he had access to his mom's house and could go there to verify whether she was there or not and just kind of to look around. On August 18th, Rod was granted temporary guardianship over his mother, which allowed him to search the house with the police. So Rod, his daughter Jennifer, and a few officers went over to the estate so they could take possession of the home due to the guardianship. They had to take one of the doors uh, that was in the garage off of its hinges in order to get inside the house. Marjorie's granddaughter, Jennifer, knew that anytime Marjorie was leaving town for a long trip, she would always clean out the freezer, so she wanted to open it and check to see what was inside. The lid to the freezer was found taped shut with two pieces of masking tape, which Jennifer easily broke through, and she peeked to look inside. She didn't see anything unusual or anything that really stuck out to her. She just saw a sheet and a red box. So she closed the lid and walked off, not really thinking much of it. At this point, the family thinks that Marjorie is possibly off at some nursing home somewhere and they just had to find her and they actually were hoping that, you know, the next step they could speak to their, her doctors right. and maybe get a lead on where she might be. So Jennifer walks off with an officer to uh, Marjorie's bedroom to go check for more clues there. After Jennifer was out of the garage, another officer, Sergeant Joe Mims, decided to go back to the freezer himself. When he looked inside, he was intrigued by the sheet, and he also saw what he thought was a piece of raw meat laying on the floor of the freezer. So he kind of pushed some things around, rearranged some frozen food that was in the way, and that's when he realized that what he saw wasn't meat at all. It was actually the back of Marjorie's head.
0: Oh, my gosh. Yeah.
1: This sounds just so horrific. And I always think of the officers and the people who find these kind of things Mm. and just like what that must be like having to carry that with you and just like how hard that part of your job has to be. Marjorie's body was wrapped in a sheet and it was laying on top of more frozen food. She was in a fetal position wearing a denim skirt and a red and white blouse. Her body was frozen solid and it took five people to lift her out. And then it took two days for her body to thaw before an autopsy could be performed. The autopsy revealed that Marjorie had been shot four times. She was struck in her spine, her heart, her lungs, and major arteries as well. The medical examiner that performed the autopsy said that any one of the shots in and of themselves could have been fatal.
0: Wow. Investigators immediately went to find Bernie, who was just about to take a Little League baseball team and their parents out for dinner. He was taken to the station where he initially tried to keep up his lies, but he ended up caving and confessing to the murder, saying he, quote, couldn't take it anymore, so he shot her, end quote. He said that on November 19th, 1996, he grabbed a rifle out of the closet and shot Marjorie in the back as she bent down to pet her dog. She collapsed to the ground and was still breathing heavily, so Bernie shot her again, he said, to end her suffering. He then dragged her to the freezer, put her inside, covered her with a sheet and food, and then washed the blood from the garage floor. He told officers that he had contemplated killing Marjorie prior to November 19th, he thought about hitting her over the head with a bat, but he said he didn't want her to suffer. Bernie said that Marjorie had become very hateful in the recent months and that she was extremely possessive over his life. Someone he was once truly friends with was what he was now calling evil and wicked, but he said he did still care for her. He also said there was nothing that specifically happened that day. They were actually about to go into town, run some errands, and then have lunch. But Bernie was suddenly overcome with the thought of having to live with Marjorie for the rest of her life. And he said he couldn't stand the thought. In fact, he said he couldn't stand it even for one more day. He impulsively grabbed the gun and he shot her. Bernie did admit to using Marjorie's assets and finances for his own personal use. The most shocking purchase that the investigators found was that Bernie had actually invested in a movie about a serial killer. He actually paid $7,000 for a 3% interest in the movie, and the movie was called The Man Next Door. It's a story about a woman who becomes infatuated with her next-door neighbor, only to learn that he is a serial killer. The DA said he couldn't believe it when he found out about this investment and felt that it was ironic. He said they were really dumbstruck and that it was almost as surprising as finding Marjorie in the freezer. Bernie was then charged with murder, and he was held on a $1.5 million bond.
1: When the news broke that Bernie had been arrested for murdering Marjorie, everybody in town was shocked, and there were a lot of people that were even outraged. There were people who just straight up did not believe the police because they couldn't get their head around the idea that their sweet, sweet friend Bernie had murdered an elderly woman. One person said, quote, In all the time I've ever known Bernie and Marjorie together, he was never anything but the most gentle gentleman to her. He's the kindest, most gentle man I've ever known in my life, end quote. The choir director at Bernie's church said, I just can't believe it. He's a very loving person. I'm still in shock. Family of Bernie echoed these sentiments and struggled to accept or understand that Bernie had done something like this. The people of Carthage loved Bernie so much that they stood by his side even after his arrest. Many people even visited him in jail and brought him cakes and pies and tried to raise money for his bail. In response, the DA added theft charges against Bernie, so now his bond had been raised to $2.7 million. Shockingly, the locals weren't as nice when they talked about Marjorie, who was the actual victim of a murder. A city councilman named Olin Joffreon summed it up best, saying, quote, From the day that deep freeze was opened, you haven't been able to find anyone in town saying poor Miss Nugent. People here are saying poor Bernie. So the locals, of course, were well aware of the dynamic between Marjorie and Bernie. They knew and even witnessed how she had treated him. So they kind of had a front row seat to everything leading up to this. Right. The story was actually made into a really awesome movie, which we're going to talk about more shortly. But a writer named Skip Hollinsworth wrote a famous article for Texas Monthly that ended up being the basis for the movie. And this article was titled Midnight in the Garden of East Texas, and it highlights the way the town really reacted to Bernie's arrest and Marjorie's death. Skip wrote about the things that people would say to the district attorney about Bernie. They would say things like, Bernie's a sweet man. And you've got to admit, nobody could sing Amazing Grace like Bernie. And these are things that they're saying about somebody who literally admitted to shooting an elderly woman in the back. And like everybody's forgetting, like, forgetting that fact because they just genuinely loved him so much as a person. Right. So the DA would then chime in and remind them, you know, that. Bernie confessed to this, and this is what he did. You know, he killed this woman and put her in the deep freezer, but the town residents didn't seem phased by that, and they were really in denial. One woman told the DA I don't care if Miss Nugent was the richest lady in town. She was so mean that even if Bernie did kill her, you won't be able to find anyone in town who's going to convict him for murder. Which is just this is wild all of this is just wild to me
0: it's so wild that she's even saying if he killed her like he did confess to killing right. her that really isn't the question <laughs> at right. all and so for her to still give him the benefit of a doubt it's pretty wild
1: yeah So District Attorney Davidson told Skip, the author of this article, that numerous people had approached him to say they were praying for him to do the right thing. And in their minds, that was to drop the charges against Bernie. Yeah. So Davidson was not amused by this. He thought people were forgetting that an elderly woman had been shot to death. And he did say that not everyone was on Bernie's side, and he did speak to people who thought Bernie should be punished, but there were a lot more people that just wanted the whole thing to be swept under the rug and to go away. Davidson was flabbergasted that people in the community could possibly believe that Marjorie was just so mean to Bernie that he had no choice but to shoot her, and... You can understand where he's coming from, too, where he's like, what is even happening here? You know, totally. how how is a whole town rallying around somebody who admitted to murdering some another right. person?
0: Right. Jury selection for Bernie's murder trial began in the fall of 1998. He would be tried separately for the theft charges because those would possibly be federal charges. Unsurprisingly, they were unable to seat a jury due to all the pretrial publicity and the general bias in town towards Bernie. A mistrial was declared after nearly all of the potential jurors had to be excused for one reason or another. D.A. Davidson was frustrated, but he wasn't giving up. He told the media that he fully believed justice would be served because shooting someone in the back is very un-Texas. The trial was eventually moved to San Augustine County, and jury selection began on February 1st, 1999. Opening statements from the prosecution alleged a central theme of greed and a love of money, which D.A. Davidson called the root of all evils. He said Bernie killed Marjorie because she found out that he was stealing from her and that after she was dead, he continued to live the lavish life of a wealthy benefactor. They had planned to introduce evidence of the $4 million that Bernie stole in total, But they never got a chance to because in a shocking turn of events, the judge announced that he wasn't going to allow any financial evidence into the murder trial because the defense convinced him it was irrelevant. So the jury never heard about the money Bernie stole before and after Marjorie's death. I think that's crazy, too, that they would even say that was irrelevant. Well yeah for the judge to to decide that it seems like that's the most relevant <laughs> right. like that's a <laughs> in really big story. factor <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. that's
1: crazy to me that the judge said it's not relevant
0: yeah so prosecutors told the jury exactly how the murder occurred and even brought the freezer into the courtroom for shock value and said quote it's not a big freezer, but it's big enough to hide Mrs. Nugent's lifeless body for nine months, end quote. I can imagine that would be a very powerful thing to see um, For see firsthand. sure. When photos of Marjorie's body inside the freezer were shown, Bernie didn't look at them. Instead, he started sobbing. The prosecution told the jury that Bernie was a liar and a coward. He called him cold, calculating and evil, and said that he was convincing enough to fool the whole town for nine months. Multiple witnesses for the prosecution testified about Bernie's manipulation tactics. A man named Robert talked about an incident that happened before Marjorie was killed. Robert was eating lunch with her at her house when Bernie suddenly interrupted them. He walked inside, went up to Marjorie, leaned over, and kissed her. Robert thought the kiss was inappropriate, as was their goodbye kiss later. And Robert said it wasn't the kind of kiss you'd give your mother. But looking back on it, he believes it was all part of Bernie's manipulation. Another woman named Angela testified about a time that she witnessed Bernie, quote, brush up against Marjorie with his body, end quote, in a way that Angela did not feel was appropriate. Angela also said that Bernie frequently showed up to leave Marjorie cards and letters on her pillow. For his defense, Bernie's lawyers told the
1: jury that Marjorie's death had nothing to do with money and Bernie had simply snapped under pressure due to Marjorie's increasing demands. They said, quote, she became so demanding that she prevailed on him to quit his job. They insisted that there was no premeditation, and they said that in the nine months after Marjorie's death when Bernie was trying to cover it up, he was spending every day worried and frightened, and they said that his mind was like a bowl of spaghetti. The defense didn't call any witnesses in the trial. On February 9th, after less than one hour of deliberation, the jury returned with a verdict. Bernie was found guilty of murder. His only visible reaction was a slight flush of his cheeks. He was facing between 5 and 99 years in prison, and prosecutors implored the jury to sentence Bernie to the maximum penalty, which would be life, and said that it would send a message to those who are preying on the elderly. The defense asked the jury to take it easy on Bernie. After all, he did confess and cooperate. Bernie got on the stand and said that living with the guilt over the murder was the most awful secret he's ever had. He talked about what a typical day was like with Marjorie and how he started at 7 a.m. and didn't end until 10 p.m. and that he was responsible for everything. He had to brush her hair, pick her clothes, help with her laundry – He said that although he loved and cared for Marjorie very much, he felt smothered, and he felt like he wasn't able to breathe. He felt like he was living in a prison. Two days after Bernie was found guilty, the jury deliberated over his sentence, and in less than two hours, they decided that Bernie should be sentenced to life in prison. Once again, Bernie's face went red, but he had no other reaction to hearing this news. He would have to serve at least 30 years before he would be eligible for parole. And while that sounds like a nice packaged up ending, there is, in fact, quite a bit more to get into in this. So we will be back after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors.
0: Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. There's a saying by Sarah Payne Stewart, you're only as happy as your least happy child. And as a parent of a teenager, I feel this big time. No matter what's going on in my life, if my kid's having a hard time and struggling, I tend to carry that emotion with me. As moms and humans, we carry a lot. And sometimes we need to invest time and care into our own brains to keep them healthy. And that's where BetterHelp comes in. BetterHelp is online therapy that you can
1: do from the comfort of your own home. They offer video, phone, or even live chat-only therapy sessions, so there's no need to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. With BetterHelp, you're able to be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours, plus it's much more affordable than in-person therapy.
0: I've spent the last several visits in therapy discussing things with my family that I feel like I'm carrying. It's a big load, and just learning how to work through it is really vital to my overall mental health. I don't know about you, but when I'm struggling, I have a hard time sleeping, and when I have a hard time sleeping, I'm overly tired, and when I'm overly tired, problems seem bigger than they actually are, and so on and so on, and the cycle continues. But with my BetterHelp therapist, I'm able to get all of my thoughts out to a person who can give me direction and encouragement to get me on track. Our
1: listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com moms. That's
0: BetterHelp.com slash moms. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions, even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast.
1: And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com
0: slash bank. Capital One N-A, member FDIC. It's been a while since I've had a baby of my own, and some days I miss it so much. The baby cuddles and baby smiles, but when it comes to diaper rashes not so much. I remember the first time my oldest had a diaper rash. I was really devastated. Here's this tiny thing, totally dependent on me. And now she's fussy and obviously uncomfortable. And I'm supposed to have the answers, Well, with time and treatment, it went away. But what I really wanted was to avoid it altogether. And now baby butts rejoice. New Huggies Skin Essentials are here, a brand-new dermatologist-approved line of diapers, wipes, and pull-ups training pants, all designed with baby's sensitive skin in mind. The wipes are thick and have zero harsh ingredients for a great,
1: gentle clean. pull up Skin Essentials has got your big kid covered, too, with a training pant that's ultra-soft and breathable to help protect sensitive skin throughout potty training. Whether you're a first-time parent or a seasoned pro, make it easy on yourself and your baby with Huggies. Learn more at Huggies.com. Once again, head to Huggies.com to learn more.
0: And now, back to the episode. So before the break, we just wrapped up the story of Bernie Titi and Marjorie Nugent, and Bernie has just been sentenced to life in prison for Marjorie's murder. We mentioned earlier that there was a movie based on this case, and that movie is called Bernie. Well, in early 2011, word about this movie began spreading throughout Carthage. The movie was directed by Richard Lanklater, who also directed the movie School of Rock, and Jack Black stars in the movie as Bernie. Shirley MacLaine plays Marjorie, and Matthew McConaughey is the DA. The movie is actually based on that article we referenced earlier by Skip Hollandsworth, and that article is also used as a source in this episode. So according to IMDb, the plot of the movie is this, quote, in small town Texas, an affable mortician strikes up a friendship with a wealthy widow, though when she starts to become controlling, he goes to great lengths to separate himself from her grasp, quote. I'm in. <laughs> yeah, you're in. So you've seen this movie.
1: I have, and-, and I love this movie. I actually took me a long time to... Really sit down and watch it. This is another one that my husband has been on for a while and just will turn on at random times like at the end of the night and I will fall asleep in the middle of it because I'm just whatever tired. And finally, he was like, hey, you should actually do this case for the podcast. And I was like, well, I should probably first watch the movie. (laughs) And so I did. And I was like, wait a minute. We should do this case for the podcast. And then our wonderful researcher, Haley, reached out and said, have you guys ever done the Bernie uh, story? And I said, no, but I would love to. So that's kind of how that came to be. But, yes, I have seen the movie, and I love it. You
0: have not seen the movie, right, Melissa? No, I have not. I got it confused. And I wonder if it came around around the same time as the um – masterminds that we talked about with Zach Galifianakis because I told Mandy I thought Zach Galifianakis was in this movie and I was like why didn't I watch it because I like him but then I found out it was Jack Black and I don't really see a lot of Jack Black things um, she's not a Jack Black Black fan (laughs) for reasons (laughs) he's just not my favorite everybody has their favorite he's not mine but I want to see this movie now definitely after um, learning about this story So for the movie, real residents of Carthage who knew the real Bernie and Marjorie actually appear in the film and provide commentary on the events. Jack Black actually went to Telford Unit State Prison to meet the real Bernie, and Shirley MacLaine spoke to him over the phone as well. So word of this movie reignited a new wave of people talking poorly about Marjorie and praising Bernie. Numerous locals went on to speak to newspapers about how everyone hated Marjorie and they loved Bernie, and how even though he did steal from her, Bernie only did so to help others. It was almost as if the movie Bernie was being used to justify victim blaming, and the general attitude was that maybe if Marjorie hadn't been so controlling and possessive, Bernie wouldn't have stolen from her and killed her, which is not a reason to murder yeah, someone. No. Marjorie's family was very upset about the movie, as you can imagine, and they felt that it did not portray the situation accurately. They didn't feel the movie focused on the fact that Bernie manipulated and stole from Marjorie and then shot her in the back. That is definitely
1: true. The movie did not focus, in my opinion, on that. It's still a great movie, especially after you've heard the story and you know the story. But um, I totally agree with the family. I can absolutely see why the family was upset by the movie. Yeah. So before the movie was released, Longview News Journal did a three-piece story on this case, and they interviewed Bernie and the district attorney, Davidson. Bernie talked more about what life was like for him. He said that Marjorie had, you know, all her quirks, but it was really when they were around other people that it was just unbearable because she turned berating and she would just let loose on him in front of other people. He said that she was very demanding of his life, and it only got worse as time went on. He started working less at the funeral home, but it was just never enough for Marjorie who really wanted him to be with her 24-7. He couldn't have his own friends or do anything without her, and he was required to be at her house early enough, as we said, to make her coffee every morning and to pick out her clothes for the day. Marjorie encouraged him to leave the funeral home so that he would have more time to spend with her. There were days that she would page him 40 to 50 times if he didn't answer. And sometimes he was maybe in the middle of a funeral or something else that was Mm. important. And so that was kind of why he had to give up all of these things so that he could constantly be available to her. He talked about being forced to shoot rodents in the yard when he didn't want to, but he said that was just the kind of power that Marjorie had over him. Bernie also provided a full and detailed description of exactly what happened that fateful night. He said that one day at around midnight, he finally had enough and he tried to end the relationship with Marjorie. He said that he brought back all of the gifts that she'd ever given him and she started crying and was very upset. And so Bernie just left and he made it down to the front gate. But by that time, Marjorie had actually locked the gate so that he couldn't leave So Bernie drove back up to the house to find Marjorie hysterical, crying and, you know, saying, don't leave me. You can't leave me. You're my only friend. And he said it was at that moment that he felt like he had stepped outside of himself and he decided to shoot her. Bernie said he felt relief after Marjorie was shot. It was like a weight was lifted off of his shoulders and finally it was all over with. But then he quickly realized what he'd just done and he panicked So using the knowledge that he had from working as a mortician, he knew that he needed to put her body on ice right away. He didn't know exactly what to do, but he figured that he could keep her in the freezer for a while and then he would, quote, think of something.
0: Bernie then went on with his life as if nothing happened, which wasn't really hard to do since Marjorie really had no friends or close connections and very few people even asked him about her. The DA felt that Bernie had intentionally isolated Marjorie from her family and everyone else for this exact reason. Further, DA Davidson believes the reason Bernie killed Marjorie is because she found out about all the money that he had been stealing and confronted him. Davidson speculated that Marjorie had called the bank to set up a meeting to figure out why she had money missing and that Bernie shot her in the back as she was heading to that meeting. Uh, There's no actual proof that this meeting was even set up, just speculation from the DA. A detective said that he believed Bernie was telling the truth about how he killed Marjorie, but that his reason for doing so was a complete lie. He said all Bernie had to do was walk away, but he couldn't because he'd become financially dependent on Marjorie and enjoyed the lifestyle he was living because of it. Bernie's attorney said he didn't believe this theory. He said, quote, there was not a malicious bone in Bernie's body. I really believe what our experts told us, having examined and tested him, that it was just a matter of disassociation, end quote. Even Jack Black, who played Bernie in the movie, seemed to be on his side. He was quoted in the Austin American Statesman saying that it's a quote unquote heavy thing to know that Bernie was out living his regular life after killing Marjorie, but at the same time, Bernie was a humanitarian outside of this one bad thing he did. He was able to compartmentalize it and put it behind him so he could go back to doing the good work. Jack Black said, quote, it's a very strange story. How could someone be capable of this murder and also capable of so much good, end quote. Later on, even D.A. Davidson changed his tune and he started believing that Bernie was a good person, which is pretty out there because he was definitely never a Bernie fan, So, you're probably wondering how exactly he ended up having this change of heart. To be honest, we're not sure exactly what happened, but it seems like the Bernie movie led to the real Bernie getting a lot of special treatment. On January 21st, 2014, he was transferred to the Panola County Detention Center so he could file a writ of habeas corpus. Now, the typical order of business with that is for the writ to be filed first, and then the prisoner is transferred. Authorities say they don't really know why he was transferred, but it was later revealed that Bernie's attorney, who joined the case after seeing this movie, saw Bernie reading literature that was meant for victims of child sexual abuse. At a hearing a couple of weeks later, it was revealed that Bernie filed a writ requesting a reduced sentence on the grounds that he was sexually abused by an uncle from the ages of 11 and 15, and that's what ultimately led to him snapping that day and killing Marjorie. The application stated that there was newly discovered evidence about Bernie's history of severe childhood sexual abuse and the abusive dynamic that occurred between Bernie and Marjorie. It also stated that the defense had new expert evaluation that shed light on how Bernie was able to go about his day-to-day life after the murder. At the same hearing, DA Davidson
1: announced that they were moving forward with the felony theft charges against Bernie as well. The judge said that she needed some time to review all the records before making any rulings. And it wasn't until May 6th that she held a hearing for Bernie. And that's the point when things seemed to have changed for District Attorney Davidson. All of a sudden, he testified that he now thought there were serious flaws with Bernie's original trial, and he believed the murder charge was too severe. He said he didn't know that Bernie had suffered from sexual abuse and that he would have still prosecuted him if he had known, but only for second-degree murder, which would have carried a shorter sentence, a maximum of 20 years. He said that if they had gone that route, Bernie would be released or out on parole by this point. So he recommended that Bernie be released on time served. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. So interestingly, the expert psychiatrist that testified at Bernie's original trial said that he didn't know about Bernie's childhood sexual abuse either, which is just an interesting little fact because you would think that would have gotten brought up in the original trial so you can see why they were like, how come we're just hearing about this now? So if you're also thinking, wow, how crazy is it that the prosecuting attorney had this big change of heart and now here he is advocating for Bernie's release from prison? Yes, that is crazy. But not as crazy as the fact that the director of the Bernie movie told the judge that Bernie could live in his garage apartment if he was released on bond. What? What is happening? (laughs) (laughs) What is even happening here? Yeah, I know. (laughs) Based on the DA's recommendation, the judge ruled that Bernie could be released on $20,000 bond and that it would be up to the state's highest criminal court to decide what should happen next. Either they could agree that Bernie should be released or they would say that he needed to go back to prison and finish out his sentence. As part of his release, though, Bernie was told that he had to maintain a job and go to therapy weekly. And he was also forbidden from talking to the media. I cannot even wrap my head around this whole thing that the director of the movie that was based on this crime that he was going to go live in his apartment, in his garage,
0: all of that is just like, what is happening? What is this? I know. I know. <laughs> It is absolutely wild. So, believe it or not, somehow, Bernie was released from prison on bond. The jurors from his original trial were not happy to hear this news. One juror said, quote, he confessed that he did it. We found him guilty. In the punishment phase, we gave him a life sentence. That's the max you can give him. It was pretty much a cut and dry case. He killed a lady and put her in a freezer. Him getting out under these circumstances, I don't think is right, end quote. Another juror expressed concern that Bernie might be capable of snapping and disassociating again and that he was a danger to the community. I'd agree with both of them. And yet another juror felt like something was super fishy about Bernie going to live with this director of the movie that was made about this case. And he said, quote, it would bother me no matter who he was living with. But probably if this movie hadn't come about, would he be even going through this? Would he be released? I doubt it. End quote. quote. Marjorie's family eventually filed a motion to the appeals court asking them to make Bernie serve his full sentence. They pointed out that Bernie, who would have known about his childhood sexual abuse during his first trial, never mentioned it until now. In November, the appeals court overruled Bernie's life sentence and ordered that he get a new sentencing hearing. Marjorie's family was devastated and they accused the DA of not pursuing the theft charges, but instead just sitting on evidence that proved Bernie stole from Marjorie before and after he killed her. The family said, quote, Danny Buck Davidson is starstruck and he needs to recuse himself. A simple internet search shows him arm in arm with the Hollywood celebrities who have been paying attorneys for two years to get Bernie a new trial, end quote. Marjorie's granddaughter Shayna said, quote, There is no happy ending here. A confessed convicted murderer is free, and any chance for justice for my grandmother is likely gone. In March of 2015, Marjorie's family filed to have a new prosecutor assigned to the case due to the many unethical statements made by D.A. Davidson. But Davidson recused himself, and two members of the Criminal Prosecutions Division of the Texas Attorney General's Office took over.
1: Later that year, in December, movie director Richard Linklater sent out invitations for a very private and very exclusive fundraiser event. And this was actually kind of a – I guess it wasn't a cover. I don't know if it was common knowledge or if they put it out there, but the fundraiser was actually for Bernie's Defense Fund, and they were trying to raise between one hundred and fifty dollars to $200,000. The fundraiser event was going to include dinner and music and Jack Black And the real Bernie TD were going to be there singing and entertaining everyone. And after that, the other members of Tenacious D were going to come take the stage.
0: That's only one other guy. I feel like this
1: isn't even real life. I feel like we're just relaying the plot of a movie right now
0: because this, this is, feels like I, a Tenacious D movie. It which does. Is, OK. Again, and that's why I why
1: like I, what I was telling uh, my husband about like this after stuff, you know, after the movie, all this crazy stuff that happened. Mm-hmm. He was like, they need to make another movie
0: like, yeah, about, about what
1: happened afterwards. Yeah. So um, for this fundraiser, they were also going to have a screening of the Bernie movie where Bernie TD, Matthew McConaughey, Jack Black and possibly Shirley MacLaine were going to be in attendance. Bernie got around this whole no publicity thing because it was a private fundraiser and the invitation was from the Bernie film gang, which was really just the director, Jack Black, Matthew McConaughey, and Bernie TD himself. So Marjorie's granddaughter was rightfully offended by this whole event and thought that it was in very poor taste. And she said, quote, I wish she was here with me. She was a loving, caring grandmother and she didn't deserve to be shot four times in the back, end quote. In April of 2016, it was time for Bernie's re-sentencing trial, and a jury would once again decide his sentence. This time, though, the prosecutors were allowed to bring up the $4 million that Bernie had swindled from Marjorie. They also had a psychiatrist counter everything the defense experts testified to. Prosecutors also had Bernie's uncle testify that he never molested Bernie as a child. However, the defense had a tape that they recorded the week before where the uncle admitted to the abuse— So I'm not really sure what exactly happened there. Uh, But they also noted that he, the uncle, had been indicted in Louisiana on child sex charges, but those charges were dismissed due to the statute of limitations. So we don't really know one way or another for sure whether or not Bernie was sexually abused as a child. That's just all the information that we have.
0: Right. Right. The defense tried to convince the jury that Bernie snapped due to the sexual abuse he endured as a child and said he went into a dissociative state when he killed Marjorie. They had their own expert psychiatrist testify that Bernie's relationship with Marjorie was typical of abusive relationships and that Bernie was like the quote-unquote battered wife who just couldn't pick up and leave. On April 22nd, the jury deliberated for four and a half hours before coming back and handing down a sentence of 99 years in prison. Bernie seemed absolutely stunned when this verdict came down. Marjorie's son, Rod Jr., told the media, quote, We've been dying to tell this story for years and years, and we finally proved it in a court of law, End quote. Finally, the public knew that Bernie had stolen nearly $4 million from Marjorie before and after her death. The jury's decision meant that they agreed that Bernie killed Marjorie for her money, not because she was abusive. Today, Bernie is incarcerated in the Estelle unit in Huntsville, Texas. He is eligible for parole in August 2029. He'll turn 71 years old that month. Mandy, what are your thoughts? I don't really know. I have so many
1: thoughts. I've uh, murder is never okay. That's my thought. That's my one thought. You know, I mean, it's not – it's really not okay. This is a crazy story and there are parts where you do have sympathy, I feel like, for Bernie because I feel like his heart was in the right place to start off with. I feel like he – developed this friendship with Marjorie. He took her in. I feel like he genuinely did care for her and want to take care of her. But I do feel like he got into a situation where he was in over his head. And because of the type of person he was, he allowed it to get to a point where it was so overwhelming that he snapped. I'm not saying that makes it okay, but I'm saying he snapped. And I do understand why he snapped, but I feel like Also, it's not okay. Like, he should have seen it coming a long time before and been like, I can't work for you anymore or whatever the case was. But it's not okay what he did. But this is such a fascinating story to me because I have just never seen or heard of another case ever where so many people are literally rallying around a person who admitted that they committed murder.
0: Right. And and there – There are stories where you find out that there has been, say, a domestic violence um, situation and the woman finally breaks and shoots the husband. And you see people coming to their defense, right? Like to some degree. I've never seen anything like this degree where everyone's like, he could sing well. He was nice to people, blah, blah, blah. He's still, I mean technically he was a thief I mean he stole from her you can say he gave it to good things great but it wasn't and his stole. money right it wasn't, wasn't his, his money decision to, do to it make with.
1: right exactly yeah
0: and so yeah and it, it is a you know I fully believe that he was a, a nice guy who like you said started off for the right reasons but whether it's the money that you know finally made him snap or he just snapped I don't know but either way somebody ended up dead doesn't matter if nobody in town liked her she didn't deserve that nobody deserves to be you know killed like that so it's complicated but I um Haley our researcher told me to not watch this movie until after and she's like watch it after and see what your thoughts are because she said that they could change if I feel this way now that that it'll probably I'll probably develop more compassion for him because right now I'm have compassion for him but i'm also like mm, right no
1: <laughs> right exactly murder yeah is murder. i can see
0: yeah i can see why she suggested that
1: you wait until after we did the episode of course i had already seen the movie right but, um i actually feel like they did a pretty good job with the movie although i do agree that it's it's more on bernie's side it's more from the perspective of bernie is so great than it is um that marjorie was a victim but um it still follows the story pretty closely and it is mm. it is it's a good movie to
0: watch yeah i'm definitely going to see it all right, Melissa, are we going to move on to the last thing before we go? We are. So this was a movie based on true events. So I wanted to give you a couple other movies. Um, it's kind of a this or that. So you decide if the movie, I'm going to give you two choices, three categories. You tell me which one was actually based on a true story. Okay. Okay. So the first one is Patch Adams. Um, do you remember that story?
1: Oh my gosh, is this Robin Williams? This is a yeah, tearjerker.
0: So, yes, it is. It's the um the story follows Hunter Patch Adams after developing suicidal thoughts, admits himself to a mental institution. He finds using humor and all these other things helps his patients, right? So that's one movie. Patch Adams. The other one is John Q. And this is the story oh, of a man, I know, too. oh my gosh, these are great movies, <laughs> they are, <laughs> whose uh, son needs a heart transplant. He goes on the organ transplant list. It's going to cost all this money. Uh, John Q basically takes over and uh, he takes over this hospital until his son is able to get this transplant. Right. So which one of those two are this is an easier one, but which one is a, based on a true story? I think Patch Adams. Yes, Patch Adams is a real story. Oh my goodness. I love it. No, it's incredible. Okay, next one. This is going to be a little harder. These are both about the lottery, okay? So there's Waking Ned and It Could Happen to You. Waking Ned, two elderly best friends in some Irish village, they look for the plot to discover the identity of the winner. They're, it's a very small town, so they're trying to figure out who actually won. So that's one movie. Or it could happen to you. It's the other one where a policeman goes to a restaurant played by Nicolas Cage. He says, hey, I don't have money to tip you. I'll either double it or I will split this with you. I'll split my lottery ticket. Ends up winning $4 million, splits it down the middle with her. In the movie, the two fall in love and he leaves his wife. Um, Which one is a true story? I'm going to say that one's the true story. Yeah, the way I I said in the movie. Yeah, I was uh, like, oh, that's a dead giveaway. Thank you. (laughs) Here's a crazy thing on that. So he buys this lottery ticket, the real guy, a police officer. He calls the lady on April Fool's Day and says, hey, I just won $6 million and I'm splitting it with you. And she's like, hey, it's. I'm still asleep. Don't bother me. And then finally, he's like, no, listen, I'm being serious. So the two families end up splitting the lottery payout. It's $285,000 every year for 21 years. So just incredible. He And his wife was like, he said that he owed her the money. And so we just split it. And that was like, that was it. I love that story.
1: That's awesome. You'd be pissed.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I would. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. No, I know. But I thought that was such a good one. Okay, the last one is this a, which one is based on a true story? This is science fiction, The Blob or Flubber. I have another Robin Williams movie. The Blob is based on it's like a 1957 movie. This thing falls from the sky. They're unable to break it loose. Somebody touches it. They have to go to the hospital. Steve McQueen is in this movie. Um, And the other story is Flubber. You remember Robin Williams is like a goofy scientist. They create this thing flying rubber. They call it Flubber. Which one of those is a true story? I feel like it sounds like neither one
1: is, but Flubber, I feel like there's products out there that are just like it. So it has to be that one. Okay,
0: it's the blob. (laughs) Um, (laughs) There's reports that go back as far as 1846 where in New York, I mean, this is like very loosely based on it, where something falls from the sky, crashes to the ground. It's just like smelly jelly kind of things and like all these weird things happen around it so apparently the blob is technically based on a true story
1: and that's all i have wow i didn't see that coming
0: <laughs> i know you probably didn't want to see that coming either but yes that's what happened <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right guys well that was the episode for this week hope you enjoyed it we will be back next week same
0: time same place new story